Hey, how's it going, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. We have a very special episode today. And I know we say that a lot, but this one really is special because these tracks were not chosen by Carl and myself. They were chosen by our wonderful community on Discord. Yeah, this is another community playlist. We've done this one time before on the podcast. I think it was, uh, Will, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it our Dungeons episode? I believe yeah, it was. I think it was another um, theme-based so episode. The second time we're doing this, um, and so our wonderful Discord community picked this entire playlist. It was really funny. I, I had this Google Doc, and originally I thought it was going to take a few days uh, to fill up, and I actually had to close it in something like an hour and a half or two hours because we already got seventy-five <laughs> submissions. And so, yeah, I just absolutely love all of our very passionate members of the Mercado fam. This is a really cool playlist. It has a lot of classics. It has maybe some less classic examples, but today's episode is level one. I think it's a great topic because I think, I mean, just hearing that, we all know what it means. Uh, yeah. But there is, it's kind of like, it's the video game equivalent of in a film, you know, you have your opening scene or for film composers, it's like your opening cue or in a musical, you have the opening number. The thing that needs to sort of set the tone and the first stage of a game more or less needs to introduce the mechanics of the uh, of what you need to know to play the game and right. also give you a little taste of the kinds of things you're going to be doing. So if the game is an action-adventure game, you typically want your opening stage to be paying off the promise of that. And I think the same goes for music. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of the games on our playlist, since they're older, they tend to be you know 80s, 90s retro games. Mm-hmm. The, mechanically, games were a lot simpler back then. So you know the stages tended to be more similar and then you did have games you know like in the Mega Man series where there there isn't necessarily one single opening stage oftentimes it's like you choose the order that you play the games but I think a lot of the right. music on this playlist still does have that function of it's it's pretty much the first time that you're given control as the player is the music that you're going to be hearing here. And that's kind of a responsibility for the music to set the proper tone. Yeah, and it's an introduction to the style of whatever these scores are. I think for most of these examples, these are highlights of of these given scores. I mean, these are some of the best tracks. I mean, this is just a playlist full of bangers, to be honest. Uh, So I'm really excited about this. I would say that looking at this playlist, they're almost all classic to me. There's some that are a little bit more modern. I would say that the playlist does skew retro today. Um, and there was there's just too many great ones to name of other great stage one or level one theme set. We didn't have time for today, but let's just get yeah, into the it. The only one we have... we have to name is, you know, Super Mario Brothers. I mean, <laughs> level well, one. That one. was actually an interesting discussion. It was like, does that count? Because that's not just played on the first stage. An overworld theme you know, in some ways, maybe you shouldn't count overworlds because they play on multiple stages where, you know, some of these themes only play on the first stage of the game. Right. So, but yeah, what you guys heard playing in was a banger to start the episode. That is Go Straight from Streets of Rage 2, composed by Yuzo Koshiro. What a way to start out our episode, keeping the energy up. 
Well, let's let's keep that going. Uh, the next track on our playlist is an absolute classic. This is Mute City, which is the very first race course in F-Zero for the Super Nintendo. This particular piece was composed by Yumiko Kanki. Let's check it out. piece of music this is mute city from f-zero it's really fun listening to this again it's composed by yumiko kanki man kanki um and ishida really came in with so much energy on the score i mean just really progressive stuff it doesn't really sound like a nintendo score that came before it really cutting edge music and music that holds up to this day i mean this is some of the most iconic and classic video game music ever i what a yeah, what a classic track. I, I was thinking about that when we were playing it. It was like, what of this defines Nintendo music? And I really think it, it, it fits in with Nintendo because there is still a simplicity there. For all the, the right. jazzy chords, for all of the... There's an accessibility to it. Kinetic energy. Really, the parts are relatively few. It's not... It's not it, like the piece implies something much more active than it really is. If you break it down, well, we hear that in the covers not, and, and arrangements over the years. Totally, <laughs> yeah. And there's there's not that much happening at any one time. And even like if you notice, bam, da da da, da da da, da da da. Calling responses. Were being arranged, yeah, for a larger ensemble, you would probably divide that between different instruments to have that effect. But what's interesting here is. You know, when the piece introduces itself, you have that kind of repeated ostinato, which has a very 80s, like the Who kind of sound to it or something. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, eventually when the melody does fully come in with that more of a brass sound, it, it's basically just those same colors from the beginning the bass, that ostinato, in that melody, and then also now we have this, you know, kick drum and snare happening but it's it, such it, a great being groove. relatively oh straightforward it works so well especially for a racing game and i love the introduction of this piece because it's, mm -hmm. it's these two simple elements but it really creates an atmosphere and it does two things that very it needs to. first of all yeah you're moving really fast so there's that repeated note idea it seems to capture the idea of the engine moving at a blistering speed yet there's something almost noble and stable about those bass chords that yeah it feels spacey it feels like this otherworldly thing 
What a great track. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, to some extent, I think Big Blue kind of outshines Mute City in in popularity. I mean, a lot of people choose that one to cover or or discuss. But yeah, Mute City is just such well, a great start to this game. It's such a pure melody. Like, I, I love how scalar it is, but how it's complemented by this beautiful harmony. I mean, I, I've been thinking about love that concept harmony. a lot you know, the season with all the Christmas music and everything playing. I mean, something like the Vince Guaraldi's Christmas time is here is an, is a similar example of like a very basic, almost diatonic melody that's complemented by rich jazz. Harmony. Yeah. That's what it's all and about. Something like it's this, you know, yeah, so da, 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 da. to just sing it by itself. It sounds almost banal or like just too simple. Yet when you hear it with these beautifully fleshed out chords and especially that like how homophonic it is that it's like every time the melody moves, the mm-hmm. two other harmony parts also rearticulate. So it has that kind of almost like the sound of like a jazz shout chorus or something where all the saxophones and horns and stuff are playing in kind of the same rhythmic pattern as the or, melody. Or you could approach it with harmonized guitars, which many people do these days. Right. Really cool stuff. Well, let's keep it going. This is, I guess, slightly less classic, at least compared to F-Zero, right? But it's so, so good. This is Little Nemo, the Dream Master by Junko Tamiya. It's classic for the podcast, for sure. Let's take a listen to the stage one theme of that game. It's Mushroom Forest. Guys are listening to Mushroom Forest. It's a classic piece of VGM by Junko Tamiya from Little Nemo for the NES. And I'm delighted that we have quite a few NES tracks today. It's always a treat. Uh, some of our favorite video game music was on that system. I think this is so wonderful that it reminds me of so much video game music to come way, way later. I mean, this almost feels like we're in the Starbit Festival and Mario Galaxy or something. I mean, there's something really in common with with that music. And if you orchestrated this, I think it would actually fit at home in a sequence like that. So, yeah, I, right. I think it's it's really cute, really delightful stuff. A, a big part of that is just, uh, honestly, the, the melodies of those two pieces of music are very similar. You know, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. That accenting that leap and also the same progression where you have the one chord going to it almost sounds like Lydian with this major two chord over the pedal and then yeah. you get my favorite moment that flat two chord but again mm-hmm. over that one pedal so it, it's really quite a lot of dissonance Very for the NES but you know Junko a lot is, of imagination yeah she's such a great composer when it comes to part writing for these it, it's quite often you know when you just have these three voices on the NES that 
the idea of voice leading sort of goes out the window because you have the two <laughs> voices do whatever the hell you need them to do. Yeah, um, exactly. But she's really good at, while it, it does function as melody and harmony, these really are two individual melodic lines that sound good and feel natural to each other. Like, if you gave this to just these three parts to, like, a flute player, a clarinet player, and a woodwind player... Yeah, it, they would be very natural and idiomatic parts to play. You wouldn't mm-hmm. have to rewrite them necessarily. Right. right. That's not the case with all NES music, and that's not to criticize the other approach. Because again, when you only have three channels, sometimes you want to make it sound like you have more, so you intentionally right. kind of divide the the use. It's a very of natural those piece of music, and I think it's one reason why it makes us think of those more orchestral pieces is because we can kind of hear the uh, little small orchestra playing this. Yeah. At least in my head. Uh, yeah, really great track. Well, this is cool. We're going to go into the future now to a fairly modern game, a classic, really a modern classic. You know, in the in the past 15, 20 years, this is one of the most beloved games and soundtracks. It's Undertale. And we're going to play the theme that plays for the first area of this game. It's Ruins. Of course, this is composed by Toby Fox. Let's take a listen. You guys are listening to Ruins, which is kind of the musical introduction to the world of Undertale. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, there were some examples on this big spreadsheet from adventure games, RPG games, which wasn't what I originally thought of. I was thinking more, you know, these side-scroller games that clearly have a stage one. Um, you wouldn't think a game like Undertale would, would be part of this episode, but it makes sense. This is the first area of the game. Uh, obviously, this is composed by Toby Fox, who did such an amazing job composing the score so many really creative and imaginative melodies a lot of personality in the score and a sense of nostalgia through all of it yeah i think this is also the the, wonderful thing that he does that is um you get a taste of it in this track is how motivic it is like in by motivic i i guess i mean even like leitmotif that characters and ideas have themes and stuff, and this is something that does happen in RPGs. Uh, it's probably the one area in video games where that can happen and does happen and did happen, and I think the kinds of games that Toby was influenced by tended to do that, especially things like Earthbound. There's a lot of subtlety yeah. and nuance and callbacks and inside jokes and stuff. 
and his music, I think, almost goes a step further than maybe what composers back in the day would have done or were able to do when it comes yeah. to that idea that he'll layer in uh you know in fact i, I kind of feel like this da 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 i forget what theme it is twisting around but it, that uh, a motif in and of itself is a reimagining of another mm. melody or another theme and a lot of there's a lot of that structured that way yeah where the the kind of rhythmic propulsion of a piece of music is derived from another thing. And that's something that, you know, John Williams will do in a film score or right. Thomas Newman or any film composer that has like an identifiable motif. Sometimes they'll twist it around and they'll turn it into a rhythmic accompaniment or then well, they'll you slow know, it down and make it a long there, line There's melody. so much about Undertale and particularly the score that's so inspiring uh, to folks like you and me and many other people. And we were discussing this while it was playing, but one of the things that's so charming is the sound of the score is, is very humble. I mean, it's this kind of old crappy sample nostalgic sound and so it goes to show that you don't need uh you know the best virtual instruments these days to, to really make a score that hits with people i mean you just need great music right and it fits the personality of the game so that's you know a lucky thing i love how he uses the dorian mode for this track yeah. because it's such a I, I mean it's like to do a a game a, a whole project that is this much of a pastiche it, you know there's going to be tracks that use Dorian, but I love yeah. the way that they introduce that particular mode because we've talked about it. There's so many connotations that go along with Dorian, whether it's heroic, old folk kind of sprightly dance quality uh, or, or this kind of mysterious mysticism. Well, yeah, it's, and that's what he goes for here. It happens to fit this first area like a glove. Yeah, it's uh, it dreamlike. emotionally. It really makes me think of Thomas Newman. Like it sounds like yeah. the scores to Finding Nemo or Wally or American for Beauty sure. or that kind of you know Road to Perdition. Or, there's a certain kind of way that Thomas Newman uses modes that has this kind of like earthy folk but also right. technological and modern sort of sound and there, there's something about the melody of this and just the overall way that it works with that ostinato oh, that so it makes good. me think of that oh i love toby okay let's move on this is such a treat we're going back to another nes classic and this is a banger of all bangers it's silver surfer composed by tim and jeff fallen uh this is stage theme one on the nes let's check it out
Fallens, man. Fallens being Fallens. <laughs> this is the stage theme one from Silver Surfer for the NES. It is rocking. Uh, it's one of those tracks where I love that it's so riff-based. That's what I love about this, this track, is it's all about these really great rock riffs that you can imagine being played with, you know, two guitars doubled with a bass, a lot of distortion. Yeah. You can really hear that. That's what they were going for in this track. But it's more than just rock. It's this kind of progressive symphonic rock, this really over-the-top um, kind of prog thing that they're going for here. Yeah, Silver Surfer, probably the most critically acclaimed game on the playlist. <laughs> Universally considered a phenomenal game, right? Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I've never actually played the game. I mean, I kind of want to play it just for a few seconds just to because it's supposed to be like well incredibly hard hard and that's a complaint that a lot of older games get because they're of that arcade model of you know one hit death or just like insanely difficult and this is another example of something where very few stages and i don't think the stages are particularly long they're just they expect that you're gonna die and die and die and die and what a you know, terrible it's not my idea favorite for a game. <laughs> type of game, and it's kind of something that's become a bit of a dinosaur. Well, uh, one thing I never thought style. about games aren't made uh, that way anymore. Until but. now, is I feel actually bad for Tim and Jeff because wouldn't you imagine that you would only hear the first few seconds of this theme, and every time it would restart, you're probably not going to get to some of the great kind of musical Easter eggs later on in the track. You know, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure when you Does it die, keep going? the music keeps going until you get game over. Well, that's at least good. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, you know, there's actually some confusion on online as far as like what stage theme one and stage theme two. This is definitely stage theme one, but I there were some videos where the other track was labeled right. as well, stage theme one. Well, not to break the rules, but that's because this game is the Mega Man style of you can actually choose. I think there's four levels and you can choose which one you play oh, in any interesting. order. So we're breaking the rules with this but one. I well, think this one, in terms of the soundtrack, in terms of uh, like what the soundtrack yeah. considers to be stage one and what i think this is probably like you know it, it where the cursor starts if it's in like the top <laughs> left of the screen you know this is what the game well, sorry if we broke the rules for. everyone but it's it's hard not to when you uh, have silver well, I mean, surfer on the <laughs> I docket i think the fallens break the rules in oh, every possible ooh. way so yes fair. they do all right, let's go to the Castlevania series. This is not the last time we'll <laughs> visit the series today, but I love this pick. Um, I don't know, actually, who picked this, but I, I'm really glad they did because I don't think the score gets enough love. I adore it, actually. It's Castlevania Circle of the Moon for the GBA. This is Awake, which is a stage one theme, and it was composed by Sotaro Tajima and Hiroshi Mitsuoka.
guys are listening to Awake from Circle of the Moon by Tajima in Mitsuoka. I love this track, and it's really wonderful GBA implementation. I mean, these two basically have these kind of two sample stereo sample channels that you can do a lot of stuff with. I mean, depending on the, the software that they used, um, I, I don't know if there's a lot of different tools, but we have like five or six, maybe even seven different instruments happening here. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, there was a lot of possibility on, on this GBA. It's just a matter of working within this really quirky uh, limitation. But yeah, this is, I think the Circle of the Moon is a great example of how good the GBA, you know, c- could sound. Yes, it's incredibly compressed. And so you have to look past that and use a little bit of imagination. But, you know, you get you get quite a bit of different channels happening here and uh they're all pretty clear you know you you know that's an electric bass you have the flute you got the strings i would love to hear this uh with like more of a super nintendo arrangement you can hear the sounds a little more clear that would be really awesome but yeah what a killer track i love the start of it speaking of prog it reminds me of kind of 70s prog rock that kind of folky influence to it It, it's just such a good piece but what it ends up being when the actual groove comes in is much less sort of like progressive it's very dance rock like it's it's just video game music honestly it's like yeah and then one of my favorite things is when that intro material comes back finally as the the chorus it's a great idea of i imagine it was written first as the chorus and then kind of reimagined as this intro. But who knows? Maybe the intro came first. But yeah, it is really cool that you establish this idea almost entirely in an old, like, Celtic dance. Yeah. And then the rock guitar comes in and it really changes it up. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Castlevania nostalgia to this melody that I have. And I didn't grow up playing this game. I have nostalgia, I think, from some of the early days of our podcast playing this but i think also just this piece of music inherently has some of that nostalgic quality in the way that it uses dorian i mean it, yeah it's, it's so much video game music has this kind of sound but even something like ray's theme from star wars you know john williams like mm-hmm. a, a similar use of dorian it's not as syncopated but the uh, da, 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 da. there's something about that type of gesture in Dorian that there's this like longing, nostalgic, and it also evokes an old world feeling. Yeah, sense definitely. of history. Yeah, I do have nostalgia for this because I did play this game and had a really good time with it. And yes, I will admit that I maybe heard this stage theme more than any other. <laughs> but it's one of the reasons I love it so much. Okay, let's move on to another banger. So glad this was on the spreadsheet. Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, The Game by Anamanaguchi. Let's take a listen to the wonderful Another Winter.
You guys are listening to Another Winter from Scott Pilgrim versus The World, The Game. Uh, this is by Anamanaguchi, and uh, it's pretty exciting. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that this game's finally going to be uh, ported to um, some kind of current systems, including the Switch, I-, I think. I think I was reading that. So look forward to that. I've never actually played this game, so I'm really excited about that. Um, but yeah, such a cool track. I mean, the combination with uh, the rock band and the chip sounds, Anamanaguchi does it in such a natural and exciting way where... When you listen to the, I think at, at this point, I think they usually use Game Boy, if I'm not mistaken. So there's these Game Boy chip sounds. They're really part of the rock band, you know? Um, and it could have easily been a little synth that's playing that melody line, and that would have felt great. It could have been another guitar that would have felt fine. But yeah, they just make it all blend. And part of, part of how they do that is Will was calling out a little bit when we were listening to this, how they do it with the drums. It's kind of this combined... DPCM with real drums. It's a really cool sound. Definitely, and there's probably noise channel stuff going on there too. It's just we are also getting a lot of noise from the distorted guitars and actual drums, so it just sounds very full. Um, yeah. But what I was noticing is that there are no flams, so if the kick drum is doubling the DPCM kick, it's all perfect. It, it's yeah. either through drum triggers or it's been heavily edited and processed, like the drums were recorded separately so that everything could be chopped up and lined up exactly to the grid. Um, I imagine it was recorded to a click, but it's just, it's such a tight production. The fact that yeah. blending these two very different things sonically into one, it, it's a, it's sort of a tall order. Cause I was thinking about how would I actually go about making this and making it sound as polished as this is. And so yeah. th- they must've solved some of these problems, which is great. The other thing that I so love about this is, you know, Carl talked about that melody line being on the, you know, NES, but it's or really Game Boy, a vocal. It it's a vocal line. It's it's so mm-hmm. it, it sounds like yeah, a that's pop true. song. And the thing that I love They're about kind of this a pop rock band, I'd say, yeah, is that I think Anamanaguchi does a great job of capturing the sort of grungy, punky pop rock spirit. I mean, the the score of the movie was composed by Nigel Godrich, and a lot mm-hmm. of the songs were written by Beck. Um, and there's such great music in that film and it has this yeah. really a lot of raw, hooks. rugged sound, but very catchy, yeah, very hooky. And it's I think- kind of a Nirvana feel where you have this grit in this like just almost like nails on a chalkboard level of grunge but these really hooky, poppy melodies underneath yeah. it. Yeah. I remember, I, I never did this, but when the coronavirus first hit, I, I remember I, I had the idea of like, singing about it with the Ramona song Corona yeah. Corona oh God. I'm glad you didn't on my mind <laughs> that would have been too soon at that time yeah now it's okay though now that we've cured it and I watched the um, <laughs> I watched the uh, this or I think it was earlier this year there was that cast uh, read through where they read through the the entire movie on like zoom and when it got to the song, Michael actually got the acoustic guitar and he he played it, which was really cool to hear him. Play Michael that again. is so adorable. I I just yeah. this movie could only he's work forever with a man Sarah. child. Yeah, he has I love the essence when, of I, I love the Arrested throwaway. Development. <laughs> I love the throwaway joke at the end where they show like nigga Scott, and then they just mm-hmm. come out talking like he's actually oh, a, he's really a really great, great guy. guy. <laughs> We're gonna get breakfast. We just shot the shit. 
<laughs> so good. All right, guys, let's move on to another SNES classic here. This is Star Fox. And the first stage of that game is, of course, Corneria, which is an absolute banger, a highlight of the score. So it works perfectly for this episode. Composed by Hajime Hirasawa. Let's check it out. wish there was more Hirasawa music. Makes me very sad. But in any case, he completed this masterpiece, Star Fox, for the Super Nintendo. This is Corneria. Um, it's a track that is very heavily covered all the time by different artists and groups. Um, really a popular piece to cover, and it makes sense. You know, it just has so much personality. And the Super Nintendo is a great system because you could really hear what this ensemble is trying to be. You can clearly hear guitar, drums, you have these orchestral elements, these synth elements, uh, a really exciting and bombastic production. And, and you know, it makes sense why people would want to bring that to life. Um, I was even seeing recently a T. Lopez um, arrangement of this, you know, I, uh, which was really cool. I do wonder, and especially because Yumiko Konki was one of the people who worked on Star Fox 2, which yeah. a lot of that music is very much cut from the same cloth. I wonder if Hirasawa knew the F-Zero composers because in any case, he makes a lot of the same choices and comes to yeah, the same decisions true. in terms of the fusion of styles. It reminds me and of how to City, score, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but also how to score, you know, flying fast in a jet plane is similar in terms of scoring like a racing game like F-Zero. Yeah. It's very fast paced. It is, it's mechanically very similar you're controlling a vehicle and you're only moving forward in one direction uh so there is there are certain challenges that the composer needs to solve and one of the things that both those pieces have in common is for how harmonically adventurous they are and kind of progressive in terms of all these jazzy chords drum wise for the most part they just get away with simple sort of kick and snare patterns this track actually gets a little bit more complicated than that mute city because there are yeah. some of those points where it's cool yeah, fills. Those drum fills and the do 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 perfect drum you know. sound i mean it's that Definitely. 80s rock sound for the drums that here saw was going also to, love going the for. like the kind of <laughs> the guitar tone the it's it's very um you know it's very retro i mean they, mm -hmm. these things again they we i think appreciate them because we have this fondness 
for the 16-bit sound. But the the tones in this track really do create a world in a way where yeah. if you were able to 100% capture them more explicitly, you might not be able to get away with having a track like this be so overtly rock and then the mm-hmm. very next stage be so overtly orchestral. The fact that the samples are rough approximations means it does that you glue can everything kind of together. go in yeah, further directions. And you know there might be some of these instruments that you could use in the orchestral compositions because they're more vague. It's something I miss from that era is that freedom to do that, where now I actually think a lot of composers are more limited now. And there's an irony to that, right? Right. Because everyone was always talking about, oh, we were so limited back then in technology. Oh, they're so excited when this technology advanced. Yes, that's true, but there was... um, a sense of freedom and exploration compositionally that you heard back then that feels more limited now. And so I do think, yeah, I think the freedom to be ambiguous. I mean, nowadays you can still be ambiguous in terms of harmony. You could be ambiguous in terms of form and melody and how you're scoring something, but you can't really be that ambiguous in terms of timbre. Um, I, I guess again, if you're working entirely in the realm of electronic sounds, you yeah. I, you couldn't you can do that. But I, I think a lot of these composers were working in the domain of electronic music that they it's not like they wanted to be doing electronic music. Mm-hmm. A lot of them wanted to be doing rock music or orchestral music or whatever right. Latin. Um, but these were the tools they had. So there's this cool ambiguity that comes from. Um, the music is written idiomatically in one style, yet the sounds we're hearing kind of get you three quarters of the way, sometimes halfway, yeah. sometimes maybe even a quarter of the way there. And I don't always know that the composers realize how much that played to their benefit because they're able I to make so soundtracks that are much more diverse and they're hung together in this way. I mean, people talk about, you know, certain production techniques of, oh, adding reverb to kind of glue all these sounds in the same space or having a certain compressor on the master of everything so yeah. that there's a kind of glue but there really is a glue of the unanimity of sounds. All of them are going through this primitive Super Nintendo sampler. There's something that marries all of these sounds together in the same world. It's surprisingly cohesive, isn't it? If you were recording all these things. Well, this next track we're going to play is, again, another more, I guess I would say a deeper cut. I mean, I think it's classic, but compared to something like Star Fox, right? This is, back on the NES, it's The Adventures of Bayou Billy. God, this track is so cool. Uh, the composers, we have some classic composers, Jun Funahashi, Kiyohiro Sada, and Hidenori Meizawa. Now, Meizawa and Funahashi are going to come back very soon in this playlist, so they are all-stars today. Let's play stage one. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh my god, that's such a cool track. It just gets you to dance. This is Adventures of Bayou Billy. Stage one, we have Funahashi, Sada, and Meizawa. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot of charm to this and a lot of unique charm. I mean, this is straight up funk. I mean, very funky bass writing when that bass drops. Um, really good kind of funk guitar uh, mimicking and really inventive use of the limited channels. You know, you have uh, the two pulses doing a lot of double duty and going back and forth to convey these different instruments in this funk band. Um, I really like the bongo samples. I think that does a lot to convey um, the environment, but also it works for funk as well. It just, this is such a unique NES track. It's, it's very so imaginative charming. Uh, in terms of the kinds of styles that it explicitly evokes. I mean, the, the shortness of the the attack on some of those lines, yeah. it makes very you think of that track. kind of, you know, funky guitar high on the neck with that kind of, you know, muted sound sometimes. Constant it, strumming. Yeah, yep. exactly. It, it makes me think that, you know, there's so many different categories of VGM cover bands and stuff, and that's something that's been mm-hmm. fun in recent years. You can have things like the hit points that take a very stylistic approach to everything. It's all filtered through a lens, and there's many yeah. groups, you know, VGM jazz bands or VGM funk groups, but I'd love to hear one that's almost like a quasi Motown like a Quincy Jones kind of ensemble that mm-hmm. maybe it could have strings but it has elements from funk and it has elements of synth like to sound like yeah. early Michael Jackson albums or something like it would be great to have because think of how much game music really kind of want something like yeah, that. that you have it's one a really foot good in the point. door of jazz arranging one foot in the door of classical it's definitely music, not pop easy music. to capture that i mean that was such a special time and so many talented people coming together and so it, it wouldn't be easy it would have to be an all-star group <laughs> be, for that for also that pretty happen. expensive to have like a Very string expensive. section in a touring live band but, but i'd love you to could definitely uh, for creating an album like if a if a band were like let's say you there was like a funk band or something that did vgm covers uh, it would be cool to yeah. hear them do a more produced because bands like snarky puppy or whatever if you listen to their albums versus like hearing them play live it's very different in terms oh, of yeah. how produced and what kinds of instruments they even have playing and stuff so i think bands that do live you know takes on tracks like this it'd be fun to hear them do like studio albums that they can take more of those chances well, I would say on this playlist, we're going from maybe the most obscure choice to definitely the most well-known choice. This is beyond classic here. We're moving to Sonic the Hedgehog and Green Hill Zone, the first stage of that game composed by Masato Nakamura. Such a classic, such a feel-good piece. Let's take a listen.
You guys are listening to Green Hill Zone. One thing, whenever I listen to Sonic 1, 2, 3, Knuckles music on the Genesis, I'm just blown away by how good it sounds. These Genesis productions are really such an inspiring example of how you can write music for this chip. I mean, it just sounds so full, so busy and colorful and pleasing. And, you know, I wish I could remember all the names. Uh, One of the names I do remember is uh, Masaru Setsumaru. I don't think he worked on this first game, but he definitely worked on, like, Sonic 3 and Knuckles and was one of the people that did more of the kind of implementation side of things. And there were some other people, too, I have to look into, but these people were wizards. I mean, yes, this music is phenomenal and these compositions are so iconic, but it sounds so good on the Genesis and the people that were actually choosing the instruments and inputting this just did such an amazing job. Yeah, it, it's interesting because in some ways it's kind of the opposite of what happens on Nintendo systems where the people that push the hardware to their limits tend to not be people from Nintendo necessarily. Like, Nintendo composers tend to write maybe the most iconic music uh, yeah. you know, on that system. But it, it, I definitely agree that like the Sonic the Hedgehog games, not only do they have maybe the best compositions musically on the Genesis, but they also sound the best. You know, I mean, yeah. maybe they're not always going for the most kind of ambitious things in terms of arrangements, but that's why they hold up. They're they're very polished. There there's a lot of finesse and there's a lot of thought that goes into all of the lines, and part of that does have to. The credit goes to Masato Nakamura. These are very well-composed pieces, and all of yeah. the musical ideas are very clear. Something that I so love about this track is just the how weird it is. Like, if you look at it musically, it's it's one of those things. It's like, you know, breaking apart Super Mario Brothers. It's so iconic to us that we maybe don't think of the things about it that are quirky and are different. And I think sometimes when people think of, like, oh, I have to make a... Uh, iconic theme for a character well it has to be really basic it has to be something i could come up with (laughs) in five minutes on the piano and it's like yeah you know actually sometimes having a little bit of strangeness to it for example this is a piece of music that almost sounds like it straddles two keys because we have this introduction Mm -hmm. that's very clearly c major and then when it goes into the a section you know, it still sort of is in C major. It Maybe it's like it's starting on the four chord. But then, you know, all the chords we get are in both keys. You know, you have this F right. major to E minor to D minor to C. And the C is like a C major 7 sound. So it feels like, okay, we're in C. But then the very yeah. next chord we get is a B flat chord, which you can think of it as the flat seven, or you could think of it as no, we're actually in F because so much of that. Yeah. There's a lot of moving around is like we're in F. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's cool how ambiguous this is. And it's like, you never really think about it as being even remotely experimental or it's one of the many reasons why I love Nakamura's music for this game is that, People, I think, could easily consider this music fairly simple because just a simple melody, very easy to hum along to, um, a very pleasing track. But there's more under the hood than most people would give it credit for. I mean, it's actually a fairly complex composition, especially if you're talking about how the chords are are constructed. So yeah, there's there's a lot of hidden complexity in this music. Now, I did did look this up, so I want to give a shout out now. The sound programmers on Sonic and Sonic 2. These are absolute wizards that really need to be applauded here. Hiroshi Kubota, known as nickname Jimita, and Yukifumi Makino, nickname of Maki. 
Those two, oh my gosh, I really sing their praises. So, all right, guys, we're very excited to move on to this week's track of the week. It was hard to pick because this is a playlist full of bangers, full of classics, but it's hard to hold this track down. It rocks so hard. This is Beginning from Castlevania Three, Dracula's Curse. Let's play the VRC6 version today. Uh, composers that we just featured. Hidenori Meizawa and Jun Funahashi. Let's rock. You guys are listening to Beginning. It is one of the most rockingest pieces of EGM. It is so good. Composed by Meizawa and or Funahashi from Castlevania 3, Dracula's Curse. VRC6 is a is a cool sound. Um, I actually did take this. I put this into NSF Play and I turned down the bass slightly because the <laughs> sawtooth on this original um you know japanese version is way too loud like the levels are are very off um on this uh which makes sense i mean this wasn't a chip that these people had a lot of experience using and also uh, it's optimized for you know consumer televisions in the same way that music i still feel like if i heard this on the tv i would still have issues with the levels of it but yeah so i did turn and even after me turning that saw down a little bit it's still kind of overpowering and there's actually some of the harmonies i would prefer to turn up but i didn't want to mess with it too much in any case it's a cool sound it's an amazing composition uh it's the hardest song that we play in the band um doing this with keyboards is a really tall task and there's even some things we have to leave out i mean our arrangement's a little closer to the nes arrangement to be honest um, there's elements that we pulled from this that aren't in the NES arrangement, but yeah, there's so much going on. It, it's a very busy piece of music, but it's expertly composed because it doesn't feel that way. It just feels so exciting. I think you'd either need three keyboardists or one like Art Tatum level keyboardist to pull off <laughs> some of these VRC six lines. Yep. Uh, because it's just really, yeah, it's such dazzling writing, and it's so intricately composed. I mean, this yeah. is sort of the opposite thing I was talking about. We were talking about Little Nemo, the clarity of the lines, but this is the other thing of, you know, we have these limited yep. channels. How much can we make them sing, and how much can we constantly be using doodles, duty cycle switching and kind of changing the roles to give the sense of all of this texture and color? And it's very much in the in the kind of rock idiom, yet there's so much classical influence in terms of the use of diminished chords and the harmonic structure of a piece like this, that it also makes you think of, you know, harpsichord or organ music or kind of, you know, Baroque fugues or something, but it has this clear melody. It has a clear song form. It's that great thing 
of, you know, we talk about this so often in game music where it's, it's capitalizing on all of the simultaneous connotations to one musical thing. So it's like using yeah. Dorian mode because it sounds old fashioned and heroic and that's what you want. But also because there's a lot of rock music of a certain era that uses that mode for those exact associations and you're getting both at the same time. And yeah. I think Castlevania, particularly this game really gets that full force that you get the classical influence, but you also get the like progressive technical rock and metal influence. It's, it's a combination also that are very classical in terms of style. They honestly, they nailed in Castlevania three just more than anything else. It's, it's my favorite Castlevania score without a doubt. I just absolutely love that combination. There's one thing I want to say before we leave this track. It's such a unique piece of music is because it has three distinct bordering on four distinct grooves and senses of backbeat i mean with the intro you know those hits and then you have that kind of disco and then you go to the really really halftime dudes that really grungy slow sound and then you go to the double time and within one song within like what 50 seconds or something i mean it goes all over the place uh just Freaking delightful. I mean, th- 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 this is track of Adrenaline the Adrenaline pumping. What a way to open a stage. And especially it's like the <laughs> fact that this is Castlevania 3. So it's kind of like to be a Castlevania fan at this time when this game comes out, you know, because you probably loved the first game. The second game was a bit divisive for people. Yeah. But then to have this, it's such a great opening stage. And to have a piece of music like this, and especially if you're playing it in Japan and you get that VRC6 sound, I mean, oh, it probably yeah, and sounded I will like say, nothing guys, you've like, ever heard coming out of your television we all have this experience listening to the track just absolutely blood pumping but i gotta tell you guys performing this track it it almost should be illegal it feels dangerous it feels like it's like musical like cocaine or something like when we when we get this track going we're just so fired up it's just crazy well, it's like, like, the, i almost i want to play it again after going back into the loop doing these harmonized trills you know it's like very fun it feels very oh, like it's empowering <laughs> it's like a key it's the equivalent of like doing a guitar solo in an 80s band like it's it's sort of tasteless but it feels so that's good. one of my all-time favorite tracks okay let's move on to a delightful piece it's from kirby's return to dreamland so we're moving ahead to the future this is cookie country composed by the wonderful hirokazu ando You guys are listening to Cookie Country from Kirby's Return to Dreamland. This is an all-time series classic. I love this track. And when I heard this, 
on this on this spreadsheet. I hadn't heard it for a couple years, and it was just like, oh my gosh, it's a classic Kirby theme. And I will say that as of late, Ando has kind of taken a little bit more of the reins of the series. A lot of these games, the past maybe four or five mainline games, he's been the primary composer uh, and composed, you know, the, the the in some ways the best tracks from from these scores. So as of late, I think Ando is just really hitting this this new level of composition. This is really good. Yeah, it, it's just Kirby music is so completely delightful. Um, and the thing that's fun about it is all this music is as as kind of saturated and sugary, syrupy as it is. Um, it it really takes an expert composer to write music that is this catchy, that yeah. has this level of kind of really satisfying old-fashioned i guess like jazz or broadway harmony tin pan yeah. alley very innocent kind of 20s 30s kind of songwriting and then good orchestration i know we're using virtual <laughs> instruments and everything here but outstanding to write music like this is not a simple task uh even though yeah, it's music that's what that i wanted to say about to this track to. This is not, nothing about this is simple music. It, it has this plucky, cute quality, and we associate that music with being for kids, and so we associate it with being simple. But this is very complex music. I challenge anyone to compose something as effective as this in this style. You're going to fall on your face. Right. You know? It's funny. It's, it's something that my, my friends and I have been talking a lot about because in in the program that we're doing you know talking a lot about different types of media music and something that you find as a composer is like when you have very little time to write a lot of music the kind of music you're going to write is not something even remotely like this it's almost the opposite but there's an interesting thing that happens um and sometimes it's maybe certain composers like drinking their own kool-aid but sometimes there's this inverse thing of like something that's very sparse and dark and minimal and drone based tends to communicate Mm -hmm. like adulthood and sophistication when really it's a lot easier to write something like that. It takes less time and you fill up time quicker. So writing 30 seconds of that is sometimes as simple as holding down one key on your MIDI keyboard. We're writing 30 seconds of this, which might be half of the entire length of the composition might take you an entire day. Uh, because there's so much detail in every moment. And I think that's something that people don't think about that like not all time is the same. It's more to do with structure. So a really fast song in a musical, you might spend, you know, an equal amount of time on the first 18 measures that you'd spend on the first 18 measures of a ballad, but maybe those first 18 measures you know, take longer in the ballad yep. um, where they fly by at a blistering pace in a faster composition. And Kirby music is just all blistering. This is cool, actually. So we're now going to move to these. This is two composers and one of the composers now actually worked in the Kirby series um, in this kind of Wii era. We're moving to Tomoya Tamita as well as Yuichi Sakakura. And we're going to play the opening stage theme from TMNT 3. The Manhattan Project. This is such a classic NES track. It's scene one.
You guys are listening to scene one. Hey, Will, I have an official request. I would love to do this in the band. I think this is such a cool track. I love how syncopated and groovy it is. It, it's just so fun and classic. I think people would really enjoy this. It's we not definitely need I don't to think do it's one that I hear a lot. I think it would be fun to do a turtles medley because I think there's a lot That's of like cool, Konami turtle stuff. Because something like this, you know, it's not that long, and we could kind yeah. of solo over it. But I think it would be really fun to kind of change into another to maybe do like three. I like that. NES I like turtles that idea. Or something. As long as I can solo at some point because <laughs> that would be really fun yeah no i love the idea of a medley because then i think we pick some you know three classic tunes and and this is one that i don't know if people would be expecting i mean i don't know if it's because it's the third game but um yeah i, I haven't personally heard of a band covering this i mean i'm sure there are i just haven't heard it but yeah, this, this is one of my favorites from the series, to be honest. I remember on that episode we did, I was just so excited to get to this track. I mean, to me, it's it's classic. I, I play this game on the emulators um, and enjoyed my time with it. And again, this is the theme I heard more than any other from this game. That's something that I have in common with a, a lot of these themes on this playlist is, you know, I, I hear these themes more than anything else because if they're a game uh, that I had a hard time with and I die a lot, it's possible I never got past the first stage. <laughs> there is something about this Konami sound of the power chords of the fourths and fifths, and it's very groovy and everything, that I do have a lot of associations with really difficult games that I would yeah. abandon quickly, and there's right. something taunting about it. There's something about this music that, yeah. to me, always felt it's like making it's, fun of you. Yeah, it's making fun of how bad I am, because the Ninja Turtles games like, are really you hard. Suck. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know Absolutely. if those, I'm sure those associations weren't intentional. Yet there are moments in games where you can tell the composers are making fun of you, like the game over in any Sonic game. You know, mm-hmm. yep. it's very much like, oh, did little baby you die? Yeah. Well, I'm excited to play something from the Pokemon series. This is from Ruby and Sapphire. Um, It's Little Root Town, which is a really pretty and cute piece of music. It's composed by, I'll pronounce it, Go Itch a Nose. (laughs) Actually, I believe it's pronounced Go and Itch Your Nose. Itch Your Nose. But yeah, this is a nickname. Let's take a listen to the delightful Little Root Town. You guys listening to Little Root Town, this is a really well-composed piece. Uh, it's one of the strongest town themes, I think, in, in the whole series, at least from the pieces that I've heard. Um, I really like it. I think it works. In my opinion, there's a lot of, t- not just town themes, but, but themes in general in this series, where there's some sort of awkward compositional thing happening where I can't yep. quite sign off on all of it. 
as a listener. Um, that doesn't happen here. I mean, this is very well composed. It's familiar. It reminds us of other town themes. It's that classic first town vibe, right? And that's the yeah. case with, with this. This is the first town, apparently, right. um, in this game. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we flirted around this idea in the past, uh, and it's probably why we don't play a lot of Pokemon music on the podcast. I so want to love it. I love Pokemon as a franchise, and I love Nintendo music, and I love, you know, it, it's all stuff I want to like, and it's cut mm-hmm. from the cloth of other things I do like, but I agree. So much of it, there's this rough-around-the-edges quality that is definitely not intentional, um, and I, I kind of feel like of any popular video game series, it's the one that I think probably has the worst influence on a lot of like young composers that are trying to kind of distill the idea of like what video game music is. And mm-hmm. I think that's why, you know, sometimes you hear music that's like, yeah, it sounds like you have the style of a town theme or a decisive right. battle theme, but it's a lot rougher than something you would hear uh, you know, in Final Fantasy, it's a lot rougher than something you'd hear in Zelda. Um, and and I will it, admit, maybe it um, sounds. Yeah, I mean, there's other games like the Fire Emblem series. I think there's a lot I could say some similar comments about, but not necessarily reminds Dragon me, Quest. Definitely, my feelings are similar from those series. Yeah, and and I will admit that part of that is a taste thing. I mean, there there's there's definitely a taste element going into this, where I'm sure there's people that love a lot of Pokemon music that I don't and that I have some issue with that they don't have. I, I would I would love to find someone who didn't grow up playing any of the Pokemon games and genuinely and earnestly loves all the music because there's so many game series that we've yeah. never played that we really like. So there's right. no vendetta here. In fact, I've played more Pokemon games than I've played Fire Emblem or than I've well, played you know Final what I find Fantasy. Interesting, I've never Will, played a single Final Fantasy game. There are tracks in the series that I absolutely love. It's just they yes. usually come from um, from not the places you would expect. It's yes, not it's from like the, the tracks Coliseum that everyone else or loves. Something. Yeah. Um, or it's maybe from like the trading card game or something. You know, like It's yeah. not necessarily the tracks that I hear everyone else talking about. All right, guys, let's move on to one of our all-time favorites. This is another definite choice for track of the week we went with castlevania 3 um this is shovel knight and the stage one theme of that game is of course strike the earth composed by jake kaufman here we go guys are listening to strike the earth just a classic banger 
one of the best pieces of EGM ever composed, in my opinion, from Shovel Knight. It's Vert Jake Hoffman here. And um, yes, we're going to mention again how loud this is. I was telling Will, like, my iTunes, like, volume slider is all the way to the left. If I moved it one centimeter more, it'd be muted. And it's still, like, super loud. Yeah, I, I like, jumped out of my chair when we played this. <laughs> I, I always need to Kaufman-proof my <laughs> levels because as soon as we press play, I just like, ah, it's loud. <laughs> There's something that happens in this in this track. Like, I hear such a level of inspiration and excitement and confidence from Kaufman in this track. I would love to be a fly on the wall on the day he was working on this track and just see what what his energy was like because you can't imagine him just kind of, you know, mindlessly putting in the the, the notes. I mean, he he had to have been so excited about. Yeah, I do this think track. this is one where the melody was composed probably at the piano in a more thoughtful way than some of his uh-huh. music. And by thoughtful, I don't mean like his other music is thoughtless. I think he's a genius. But I, it's like the, also the fact that this composition, all, the intro and the A section both use that melody. It seems yeah. very like thoughtfully composed. like this is the main theme. This is the for main the character theme. of Shovel Knight. Absolutely. And that's what it feels like. I mean, it has everything you want this game and this character to convey. I mean, yes, there's this medieval folk classical influence, but it's also rock and it's VGM. It's reminiscent of composers that he grew up loving in the 8-bit era, and it reminds you of that. But it's also, again, it's going further into some of their influences. Um, And really, it doesn't sound like any other piece of EGM. Is there Uh, ever going to be just a Shovel Knight 2? I know they've done all these expansions. Well, there's going to be Shovel Knight Dig, yeah, which uh, he's going to score, which he he kind of teased the the sound of it is it's going to be this dream 16-bit combined sound where imagine like SNES and Genesis combined with like maybe some other things. So I think it's going to be a really cool me, sound. Because like I, I love all of the arrangements of tracks that he does, but I just want new melodies. Because like for yeah. as impressive as all of his arranging skills are, and I mean he's the best of the best. I really love his melodies. He's a great. Oh my he's god! Great me at, too. Like that's what's so awesome about Shovel Knight is you have your cake and eat it too. It's dazzling yeah. like the Fallen's, but it's catchy like Manami. It's like you have everything that you would want. Uh, in one score, and it well, is, that sounds like, like you're off to a good rap verse there, dazzling like the Fallen's and catchy like Manami. It sounds like <laughs> kind of that inside joke. If I, I should verse. rhyme Manami with tsunami, that would be yeah. a great. To, okay, we'll get we'll get working on the rap guys after yeah. we record. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, this was I'm glad to include the most modern choice uh, on this playlist, and I made a choice to include this. I was excited when this came up on the spreadsheet. This is from Hades composed by Darren Core, but let's take a listen to the really rocking and kind of progressive Out of Tartarus.
guys are listening to the absolutely badass Out of Tartarus or Tartarus from Hades. Uh, and this is the opening area of the game, apparently. This is by Darren Korb, and we made an edit here so that you guys can hear the full rock band uh, section. When, when that comes in, it's such a payoff. In the original, it takes about three minutes to get to that. But, um, yeah, we kind of wanted, wanted you guys to hear that because it's so cool. I love the sound earlier, though, with the acoustic guitar and, to me, what feels like a cajon maybe with some effects on it. Um, but yeah, when the full band comes in, just it's a great riff. It's this it's this really I think it's kind of Dave Grohl it's this Dave Grohl esque example of a riff where it's weird and it takes a while to understand it, but then that becomes the hook of it. Kinda of, if you want to think of it as like four measures of this kind of four thing and then one measure of five, whatever you want to think of it as. But it, it throws you off a little bit. And then once you start to get it and expect it it's it's so satisfying. Yeah, I, I, I it's very lopsided, and I mean meters like eleven eight or thirteen eight or fifteen eight. The ones that get like very kind of you have to wait a while before it returns back to the loop are are so effective in music because you kind of as much as you repeat them, it never starts to feel normal. We're like seven right. eight after a little while, it becomes. Um, yeah. expected. It, yes, it's uneven, so it's not symmetrical, but y- you predict it. But what's cool about something like this is that you always feel like you're lopping off a beat. It always feels a little disjointed, and it's such an effective thing in music. The other thing I just love about this track is it's so cool to hear Darren really get to go for like this gut-busting, really heavy rock sound and he nails so much the of his sound. music you um, can tell is influenced by that but it has to be great these playing, kind of light acoustic colors um, really good production really again reminiscent of, of Bastion some of these inventive productions simple ideas especially in the first part with the acoustic guitar really good sound though too um, it's rocking even when it's on acoustic but then when the full band comes in it's just you just kind of you know you, you bob along to it. Yeah, to me, I was listening to this track, and to me, the best way that I was able to break it down was four measures of 4-8, one measure of 5-8, which if you count that, that's 21-8. And so that's really the only way I could describe it is either it's either in 21-8 or it's four measures of four and one of five. I, there's really no other way that makes sense to me. Um, it's really weird and really cool. Yeah, awesome composition and... Yeah, it's it's just interesting because so much of Darren's music, it, you can hear the influence from a lot of kind of like 90s guitar bands, but so much of his music has to be sort of like light and colorful and acoustic and has this kind of like made in the garage sound to it. But it's, right. it's so awesome to hear him like go for this really authentic yeah i mean it it sounds like a dave grohl riff it sounds like it was really exceptionally produced and well recorded and it has that like radio single sound to it good job darren you nailed that one let's move now back to the nes i love going back in time so much on this playlist let's go to metroid and let's play the first area of that game it's brinstar composed by hirakazu hip tanaka
You guys are listening to Brinstar, a classic. There's a lot of hope and optimism in this piece of music, which is very important because going back to this original game is a difficult experience and it can be a frustrating one. And so I think the hope that you're feeling from this theme is so important to propel you forward in this fairly tough um, tough game in, in a way, uh, especially if you get used to something like Super Metroid or Zero Mission. It, it's hard to go back to the original, but very historically important. Will, can you remind me, I was listening to the Japanese version, and, and at least for Brinstar, I think they're identical. So does that does this theme not use any FDS um, instruments? Or, or what? what's the difference, again, between the, the Japanese version? Because I, I thought that this game came out for the FDS as well. It did. Uh, in fact, this is... Like The Legend of Zelda, this is an early FDS title that made use Brinstar, of the disk system saving didn't capabilities. Use that, that channel on Brinstar? Um, I, I'd have to go back and listen. I, I to me it was I identical. a of it, but I, some of the... I think often the FDS was used for sound effects. Um, okay. So for creating some of the alien noises and some of the sounds of Samus's weaponry. Um, but it, I think there's very distinctive tracks that have a very different feel on the FDS. One of them being a lot of the, any of the jingles. So like the, da, Oh, da, that's true. Da, yeah, that's true. Or whenever I didn't you notice get that. A, yeah, da, 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 where there's something that happens that those melodies are like technically buried in there in the NES version, but the counter melodies are almost feel more prominent and become like the melody. Right. So the first time I played this game, it sounds like the jingle goes da 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 and it's like it's kind of awkward. It, it, yeah, it's very awkward. Um and it's something that's a little unfortunate about the way that the the NES version was translated, but yeah, Brinstar I think is just such a phenomenal composition. I, the chord progression here it has that kind of noble mixolydian sound, but it's actually this oscillating between the one chord and the flat three, which is something that you know yeah. composers like Howard Shore do that all the time in the Lord of the Rings. Well, well, that movies. that brings me to a a question. In your opinion, do you think that? Tanaka had a clear composer he was going for or listening to or do you think it was just this overall filmic rousing thing yeah, that he was I going for? Yeah, I think it for? was an overall filmic approach. I mean, I think writing for 8-bit colors is just so distinctively different that there's a certain sound when you're doing an overt pastiche and I don't get the sense that's what Tanaka is almost ever doing. Um, yeah. He kind of beats to his own drum. Something that I love is the independence <laughs> of the lines here. That that middle voice, that yada da da yada da. It's so it, it's 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 just a great part. It, it mm-hmm. you can follow that as its own melody, um, but it plays against the pitches of the bass and the melody to create these really beautiful harmonic moments. To me, one thing that I am always struck by when I listen to it is very appealing note-wise. I mean, the notes that he chose, really great notes. But rhythmically, too, I mean, it's such an appealing piece from a rhythmic perspective. Yeah. The the vamp, like the groove that's happening, the march, the melody itself, really just it's just a marriage of rhythm and harmony together. Yeah, I, I just... an outstanding I, track. This is an example of a track, and I think Nintendo does this a lot, where... I feel like it's taking the it's playing the emotions straight. It's playing them serious. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not a creepy, scary Brinstar necessarily, but it's Im- the heroic empowerment of Sam. It's rousing, as a exciting, a little mysterious. I sort of wonder if if there was any film 
influence ever. It probably came from the Jerry Goldsmith score to Alien and James Horner's score to Aliens because those movies probably played the biggest aesthetic influence in the Metroid games. Oh, absolutely. Well, guys, let's end our day other than our play out with an absolute banger again on the NES. This is Shatterhand Area A. You guys listening to Area A uh, from Shatterhand, and one of my favorite composers, Iku Mizutani, he was also joined by Koichi Yamanishi, and I would love to do a panel talking about like progressive video game music, two different approaches, you have the western approach, which is perfectly exemplified by the Fallens, and then you have the Japanese approach. It's so different, but there is this energy that they have in common, and they're both really exciting, really appealing. Um, But yeah, this is kind of that Japanese style of progressive rock for the NES. Yeah, it'd be fun to show like Alberto Gonzalez, Tim Fallon, Charles Deenan, and like to contrast that with a lot of the great Konami composers because there is a, there's like such a distinctive sound where it's like where they get progressive is in terms of the composition itself. Um, And the implementation is really solid, but I feel like a lot of Western composers like to get into the place of we talked about this with like the demo scene stuff of like exploiting the technology and making it do stuff that only it can do so using the arpeggiator and writing these kind of lines that a human couldn't even realistically do where something like Shatterhand it's like humans could do this it would require some virtuosic playing and really yeah. together a sense of like the band cohesion but well it's, that's an, it's this just is another score impressive i have a request well for written. i'd love to do something from shatterhand one day oh, but uh, yes. guys this was so fun thanks to our wonderful discord community for continuing to just be so awesome and passionate um, really great spreadsheet. Uh, again, we had about seven. We had we had exactly seventy-five submissions, which came in no time. And I think some of the leftovers I'll try to include on future Mercado radios and stuff like that. Um, we're gonna play you guys out with a really pleasing way to end this episode. It's Outset Island from The Legend of Zelda: Wind Waker. I, I liked that choice. This one was actually composed by Kenta Nagata. So that's how we're gonna end today's episode. Will, did you enjoy yourself today? I did. It's fun to hear. You know, I, I love hearing new music and being exposed to things that I haven't heard before. Um, but it's also, there's nothing quite like just, you know, a little trip down memory lane listening to some classics. And to yeah. also talk about, you know, what makes a first stage theme, you really have to sell someone 
on the overall aesthetic. And I think all of these tracks do a great job of kind of fulfilling the promise of what you're going to get in those games, whether it's something like yeah. Castlevania, this classical rock, or something like Sonic, which is this sort of fusiony pop sound, or something like Bayou Billy, which has, a, you know, maybe a, a slightly harder sell to make, or even <laughs> Star Fox, Silver Surfer. You know, the, the so many of these games do a wonderful job of using the kind of platform of this opening stage to give you a sense of what the aesthetic sound world is for the games. And it's fun to do that as well as having these amazing compositions and catchy melodies that we still love to just a great playlist in general, right? Guys, I wanted to mention, uh, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out on Monday the 14th, this coming Saturday the 19th, I'm going to be putting up a really fun YouTube video of a handful of winter-themed VGM covers. So look forward to that. I'll probably, you know, post it on social media and, and everything like that. So yeah, I'm really excited to to unveil that. I had a good time recording that. So Will, anything else you got to plug here at the end? Uh, I don't think so. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We hope you have a great rest of your week um we have just two episodes left of our season and so next week we're going to be doing an original showcase episode that's always a fun time so definitely look forward to that i think that's about it enjoy outset island my name is carl brueggemann and i'm will brueggemann have a great week everybody peace out <laughs>